Well, good morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the thoughts and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in the final months of 1966, Dr. Bill Fagey faces an almost impossible situation. You see a young medical missionary, just over 30 years old, fighting on the front lines in the battle against smallpox. He faces an outbreak of this virus and very little that he can do about it. You can smell smallpox, he writes, long before you enter the patient's room. And he calls it a, a loathsome disease. And the truth be told, it's, it's little wonder why. I mean, it first appeared on the scene a little over 12,000 years ago, and in the time since, has claimed more than a billion lives, more than 300 million in the last century alone. And for many years, uh, there was very little that anyone could do. Uh, very little, that is, until an English physician in the late 1700s developed a vaccine against this virus. And the century and a half that followed that vaccine almost wiped out smallpox in most of the world's wealthiest places. But as recently as the late 1960s, this very deadly disease took more than two million lives every year in places like Asia and Africa. And that's why in the final months of 1966, Dr. Bill Fagey finds himself in an eastern region in the country of Nigeria. It was a little after 7 o'clock in the evening. That's how Bill likes to tell the story. It was a little after 7 o'clock in the evening when we received word from a remote jungle village there had been another outbreak of the virus. What we need to know is that in those days, uh, the common practice was to vaccinate an entire population. The idea being that when 80 to 90% of the population has been vaccinated, the disease has nowhere to go. But there was a problem, Bill explains. You see, our program was so new uh, that most of our supplies, including the vast majority of the vaccine, hadn't arrived yet. And you've got to imagine that it feels like an absolutely impossible situation. I mean, there are quite literally thousands of people hungry for vaccine. Uh, but Bill looks down, and there's what? Five vials of medicine and, and two jet injectors? And that's why no one would blame him. If he said, it's just not possible. But you see, that's not how this story of this uh, medical missionary goes. And it's all because he dared to dream, was bold to imagine. What if, he asks, what if we treat smallpox like a forest fire? What if instead of trying to vaccinate an entire population, we try to contain the disease, then what little vaccine we do have would go a whole lot further. And, and it probably seems pretty obvious today. But back in Bill's day, it was, uh, it was pretty radical. And his colleagues' pragmatism almost got the best of him. Bill, they said, we need to be realistic. We need to face facts. It's just not possible, but he dared to dream. He was bold to imagine. And because of that, he and his team defeated this virus in the Agoja region of eastern Nigeria. And 13 years later, this strategy, 
His strategy of containment and observation was responsible for the worldwide eradication of the smallpox virus. Not only you, but uh, at least for me, when I hear his story, it makes me wonder what would have happened if his colleagues had actually stifled his imagination. Oh, what would have happened if they had actually convinced him it's just not possible? I mean, how would our world be different today? Because I think we all know how easy it is to be convinced, even under the best of circumstances. Maybe that story is familiar to you. A hope dashed, a dream vanished, an impossible possibility that never happens, all because someone or something says, it's just not possible. You see, it's in a world like this that we meet Jesus today. And yet it's also in a world like this that Jesus dares us to dream, invites us to imagine, calls us to consider that right now, he's in charge. And because he is, the impossible might just be possible. You see, that, of course, uh, brings us to today's reading from John chapter 6, a rather familiar story to many of us. It's recorded in all four Gospels. And as the, the reading begins, a little bit of context is, is tremendously helpful. You see, uh, in John's Gospel, Jesus, since the very beginning, has been performing these signs and wonders. Uh, these signs and wonders that point to who he is and why he's come. And they all start in John chapter 2. Uh, Jesus is at a wedding in Cana, and he takes a bunch of water, and he turns it into wine. And then uh, two and three chapters later, those signs and wonders continue uh, when he heals a young boy, a royal official's son, or, or a man who hasn't walked in 38 years because he's been paralyzed, walks for the very first time. And yet, in the midst of uh, all these signs and miracles, Jesus and his disciples still manage to carve out some time to get away. And that's what happens as the curtain rises on today's reading. He and his disciples are making their way across the Sea of Galilee, their destination, a distant shore, where they're going to eventually go to rest and relax, to stay and pray. But today we discover there's a problem. See, Jesus has grown so popular uh, that even sneaking away draws all sorts of attention. And so as today's reading begins and the disciples land on that far shore and make their way up a rather small mountain, Jesus looks up after a long morning's hike only to see a huge crowd begin to gather. I mean, there are quite literally thousands of people, men, women, and children, some young, others old. Some are healthy, others sick. Some come limping, others walking, still more carried along. And they're all there, all coming, all ready, all eager to see Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He welcomes them. He welcomes them, and then, and then he turns around and he looks at his disciples and he says something pretty obvious. We're going to have a lot of people to feed in a couple of hours. And then he asks a pretty basic question. Where are we going to go to find the food to feed these people? And, and it seems like a pretty innocuous question to Jesus, but if you're one of his disciples, it seems almost impossible. And that's why I just love their response. I mean, first you got Philip. And Philip is cool and calculating. He's the guy who, who counts the numbers, does the math. Lord, he says, 
Even six months' wages wouldn't be enough to feed them a little. And then, uh, then there's Andrew, our church's namesake, and, and a bit of an overachiever, if you ask me. See, he doesn't count the numbers. He doesn't count the cost. He looks around to see what might actually be possible. And assessing the situation, he says something that, uh, that I find actually a little snarky when I read it. He, he sees a young boy over in the distance and says, Lord, he's got five barley loaves, two fish. But what are they among so many people? Now, we're not actually told how many of his disciples speak up and say something to Jesus, but what we, uh, what we do discover is that eventually Jesus looks down at the resources that that young boy has brought. Five loaves, two fish. And then he gives thanks to God, and he feeds more than 5,000 people. And it's all to show them, his disciples, the crowd that gathers, that he's in charge. And because he is, the impossible might just be possible. Now, a couple of months ago, back in April, a colleague of Dr. Bill Fagy sat down with Fortune magazine and shared a number of insights about his rather long career in public health. And they're all pretty uh, fascinating, but this one thing really stuck with me. He said, our, our biggest foe over the years hasn't been the remote locations. It hasn't been the technical hurdles. It's been a failure to imagine. A failure to imagine what might be possible. You know, the more I study today's reading, the more I'm convinced uh, that this is exactly what's going on with Jesus' disciples. And sure, you know, I'll be the first to admit that uh, what they're doing is really rational. I mean, uh, these teenage and 20-something guys probably don't have six months of wages lying around just to feed a, a couple thousand people. And even if they did, that may not be the best way to spend their money. And, you know, Tagba, the traditional location for the feeding of the 5,000, is, is still a couple miles from the closest town, a place called Capernaum. For just a moment, consider their situation. What's their biggest foe? Is it really the remote location? Is it really the technical hurdles? Or is it perhaps a failure to imagine that Jesus is in charge and that because he is, the impossible might just be possible? You see, more and more as I think about today's reading, I think this is the reason that Jesus performs this miracle, not to feed 5,000 people. And these people are going to be hungry later in the day. But instead, to show his disciples both then and now that what we so often consider impossible might just be possible. And I'd be willing to bet that they're probably not the only ones who have limited their imagination about what God can do. I mean, the more I think about today's reading, the more I consider my own life, the more I realize that this story hits really close to home. Maybe it feels that way for you. You know, the relationship that never got restored. Uh, the risk that you never managed to take, the, the trust over the years that's, that's been very reluctantly given. You see, it is so easy to be convinced by the world's message that there are certain things in our lives that just aren't worth trying, aren't worth doing, aren't really possible. And that's why Jesus performs these signs and wonders. That's why he takes five loaves and two fish and feeds more than 5,000 people. And it's why a year from now, 
at the very next Passover, Jesus will let himself, allow himself to be put to death. So that three days later, when he rises from the dead, he might show people like you and me that he's the one who's really in charge. And because he is, the impossible really is possible. Now, in his memoir, House on Fire, Dr. Bill Fagey writes about the most important ingredient in the eradication of the smallpox virus. He says it was uh, the belief that it actually could be done. He goes on to say that, uh, you know, the technology and the, uh, the infrastructure, they were all necessary. But those things all rested on the faith that our work could actually be accomplished. And he goes on to say something that uh, I will likely never forget. He says, we all know the old adage in life uh, that some things have to be seen to be believed. You have to see it to believe it. But then he goes on, there are also many more things in life that first have to be believed before they ever can be seen. You know, one of my greatest joys as a pastor has been seeing how that kind of faith has been at work in all of you. Not the faith in the eradication of smallpox virus, but, but faith in Jesus. As I've seen uh, the relationships that actually have been restored over the years. Uh, the risks that so many of you have taken. The way uh, that you always are asking the question, what right now might God be making possible? You know, it's the thing, as I think about uh, this house of worship, that brought uh, so many of you here 10 years ago. And it's the thing that uh, keeps you going as you reach out to people in a brand new language. As you think about going to places like, like Howard County, what would it look like to bring the mission of Christ up there? And then, as so many of you ask the question in your own life, what is it right now? that God might be stirring in me and making possible. So on this uh, last Sunday in July, it's my hope and prayer for you that, that God would bless you as each and every day he continues to dare you to dream, invite you to imagine, call you to consider that right now, no matter who you are or where you're at, he's the one who's really in charge. And because he is, in your life, in mine, the impossible might just be possible. Amen. Remember, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.